This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sector's podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by the Travelability Summit, a virtual conference designed to bring together the disability travel community, destinations, hotel, cruise lines, airlines, attractions, and product innovators to exchange practical solutions and new ideas for making travel accessible for all. Attendees will come away with an in-depth knowledge of the latest innovations and understanding of best practices and will experience firsthand the challenges of travelers with a disability. To learn more, go to TravelAbilitySummit.com. And now it's on to our show. Today we feature the three amigos from the Advocacy Den at Destinations International. We welcome back Jack Johnson as Chief Advocacy Officer. Jack manages the overall public policy operations at Destinations International, including member advocacy education and training, development of destination tools and best practices, coalition work with peer organizations, industry research, and related public affairs activities. We also welcome Andreas Weisenborn, the Senior Director of Research and Advocacy. Prior to joining the DI team in 2017, Andreas spent 11 years with Visit Baltimore, helping with its research, technology, and information systems across the organization. And also, please welcome Gabe Sater, Senior Director of Advocacy Policy and Program Development. In this role, he focuses on issues related to destination management, sustainability, strategic planning, public policy issues such as homelessness, affordable housing, economic development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and ways to achieve destination organization alignment with the community it serves. Jack, Andreas, and Gabe, welcome to DMOU. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. You know, as we approach uh, Destination International's 2020 virtual advocacy summit, and a summit that John Lambeth has said is the best event of the DI year, we find ourselves buffeted from every direction, right? Global pandemic, protest demanding racial justice, violence in our streets, a divisive presidential election just weeks away. As we prepared for this episode, Jack called this moment a strategic inflection point, and that is the working theme for the summit. So, you know, you're already the best summit, according to John. Tell us why this year's summit is more important than ever before. That's very flattering for John. I, I appreciate his comments. Um, he's been a, a good supporter and, and, frankly, a major contributor to our, our efforts, so I appreciate that. Actually, the strategic uh, inflection point, I actually got that term from a, a politician who put it into a speech. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. That's a business point, isn't it? It's not usually that you, you politicians yeah. throwing in stealing lexicon stuff from uh, uh, the business world. So I did some research on it and it just more and more, it just sounded like the time we're in right now. To some extent, it's been building for decades. I mean, you go back to the 2008 speech uh, by Maura Gast, you build a place where people want to visit, you build a place where people want to live. And it kind of starts from there, and the and the industry has been progressing down this road of a, a broader vision, dabbling into beyond just marketing and sales, but getting into destination development and placemaking, and and kind of beginning that pivot to what I believe they have to get to. Last year at the annual convention, I delivered the speech that basically was a a sense of urgency, which at least that's what I hope to convey. Which is we missed a few things along the way that we need to get back to. Um, we've Fail to dot some I's and cross some T's, which we need to go back and do. But really, 
it's kind of time to stop moving in piecemeal and slowly down this road, talking about sustainability, talking about transparency, talking about a focus on our community and our residents, talking about working with our community stakeholders, civic stakeholders, even beyond our industry. And it's time to actually start speeding up the process and doing that. Then this year happened. And I think it underscores more than anything that the vulnerabilities I was talking about really are reflected in this moment of time, the, particularly here in the United States, uh, the United States government's uh, approach to uh, bailouts and support for various industry sectors that just kind of like totally ignored us. The uh, focus for uh, just making arbitrary decisions with not including destination organizations in the thought process really kind of focuses this moment that kind of proves the, the vulnerabilities I pointed out last year are actually there. But as I step away from this point, I kind of realize we have been talking about the fundamentals of our industry changing. God knows from technological and information aspects, this industry has been upended as much as any other industry, if not more. But this is kind of the moment where all these points are coming together. And it's the time when you really have to understand that if you're going to come out on the backside of this and be in good shape, you're going to need strong support within your community. You're going to have to, community is going to have to know what it is you do because there is going to be competition for government and tax revenues like never before. And ours are definitely very attractive to be moved away from destination promotion and moved to something else. This is the time when we really need to come to a community buy-in, community alignment that we talked about in the DNEX report where everyone's on board on the approach we're taking, the brand that is this community, but how and what tourism in our destination should look like. Uh, I keep thinking of the conversation in Hawaii, whether it's 7 million tourists they should have or 5 million. Other areas are really getting into discussions about, well, what is the role that tourism plays here? So these are the type of things that are all coming to this point, the strategic inflection point, where I also think that our economic structure, our funding structures are just going to break because they're so reliant on our single revenue source, which is hotel taxes. It's the point where I think people are going to ask us to explain what it is we do and measure us on something other than ADR or hotel occupancy. Uh, it's the time when people are going to try and decide whether maybe this is a public good or whether it's just a convenience, uh, a luxury. And I think this all comes at this point. And if we miss it, if we like two years from now, look back and like, you know, hit your head and say, oh my God, how did I miss that? You're going to find yourself straining and fighting and maybe not even surviving. So this is, I really think, a key moment in our history where it's now time to just make those dramatic changes that we need to make. Uh, just to speak a little bit about to why you should come to the Advocacy Summit, I think it actually speaks broadly to you know a form of engagement with our membership of Destination National as a whole. In fact, that we are sort of our own community in this. You know, one of the things I always valued so much as a former member was the the summits and the engagements. Was that that I met my peers who sometimes had similar problems and you know sometimes had similar answers too, you know, regardless of city, state, or province. And the Advocacy Summit, you know, when Jack and I sort of started it four years ago to this little tiny thing to in Baltimore to to what it is now, it's really sort of started to show that 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 community of people who are looking to introduce 
advocacy into their roles, have existing problems, and maybe even have existing solutions, that every year the success of it has grown and shown that there is this level of commitment in, in the broader membership towards adding advocacy as part of their core role. So I would certainly encourage anyone who either consider themselves a connection point to sort of meet your peers who might be doing something you should be interested in, or maybe the reverse, you can offer solutions to problems someone else might be having. Problem solving sharing has just been fascinating. I was at a table where a bureau was under really siege and it was looking as if they would lose the contract, right? But the issue is, is that no other agency but a DMO has the database that we operate with, right? You just can't hand that over to an ad agency to run the DMO. And that was what was being discussed for this community. And the, somebody across the table said, well, hey, here's the deal. You have to turn over the database when you dissolve the corporation. She said, don't dissolve the corporation. Just somebody write a check for $50 every year, put it in the bank, and the corporation continues. And you get to keep the database. And we all sat around going, that's brilliant. And nobody would have thought of that if we, if we hadn't been in that room at that table having the great give and take. Jack, I want to go back real quick to this point of the federal government completely sidelining DMOs when it comes to any kind of relief funding. And I know we take it very personally that that we're being ignored, but it's not just us. It is all 501c6s, which you know I think you know the fabric of a community is kept together by the totality of the 501c6s. What is it in Congress's mind that they don't understand the value of 501c6s beyond DMOs. Just what are we thinking they're thinking? We're very much set up with a focus on business. Capitalism is, you know, an inherent value that we all sort of embrace or most of us embrace. And that's reliant on the individual liberty to create, you know, your own business. So if we revere the small business. If you look at how the United States government, particularly when you contrast it with other countries, how they addressed relief, most of it was to push money through existing businesses to try to keep businesses opening or keep businesses from laying off staff. They get the for-profit model. We're very proud of what we've created and what the United States has engineered in the 20 and 21st century in terms of industry and of knowledge and of wealth uh, is extremely remarkable and amazing and enviable. But I think you're right. I think on the other side, we've never fully appreciated the role of the not-for-profit. How many times do you hear government officials talking about, we need to run government like a business, or we need to bring you know business principles into government? There is somewhere along the line, <laughs> we've kind of lost this idea that there is a service some things exist to produce a profit and some things exist to produce a service. And I think that is the thing that we have not spent enough time talking to Congress and talking to elected officials in general about. You're right. This is affects uh, not-for-profits, 501c, uh, sixes across the board, or even uh, elements of government where they've kind of created these authorities or or unique units of government which have a service mission. And it's actually ironic as I think about it that government would think this way since they're in the service business. But I think that's why we're having problems getting our heads around, a lot of them are getting their heads around the post office. I mean, it's, it's like, oh my God, you're running at a deficit. A business would not survive if we did this. Well, they do things that no business wants to do because FedEx, 
and UPS doesn't want to deliver mail in, in the rural areas. I mean, they, mm-hmm. right. this is a service that we created that bonds our society together, creates a vehicle to deliver service, government services, veterans checks and, and social security checks and ballots. It's also something that's key to us, but for some reason, and maybe it's just in, our, in the U.S. DNA, we just focus on business. I, I think I, I mentioned in the speech last year, you know, one of the things that our elected legislator was going to be able to do at the end of a session would say that he had done something for economic development and you got extra points mm-hmm. if it was something that would so-called help small businesses. You never see him going out there and saying, I have made it easier for not-for-profits to operate. They don't run on that. It's a mindset I think that we have to change. So most DMOs are facing draconian budget cuts because of our sector's unfortunate reliance on hotel revenues, and only a handful of governments have stepped up to assist DMOs with revenues from other sources. But if DMOs were seen as a community benefit, we'd likely be witnessing a different reality, that revenues from other pots would be brought to bear. Gabe, during your session at Annual, you stressed that DMOs need to get serious about, as you called them, unusual suspects. Give us some examples of what an unusual suspect might be. This idea of attracting funding from unusual suspects is based on this premise that destination organizations fundamentally provide a service to their community. You know, we've at Destination International talked about uh, this idea of a community shared value for quite some time. uh, And sort of baked into that premise is that uh, the destination organization is delivering value to its destination Uh, that goes beyond just the tourism or hospitality sector and really touches all corners of the destination. You know, it's built on a premise that we hear a lot that a great place to visit is a great place to live. (laughs) You know, as we say, a great place to live is a great place to work. Yet what we see when we paint in broad strokes and, and look at the industry, at least in the U.S., is sort of a fundamental disparity between this idea of delivering value across the community and who's actually got a seat at the table or who's actually got an investment in the destination organization. And what we see is a handful of what we playfully call the, the usual suspects. So obviously, you know, hotels are there and looking at, at occupancy taxes and, and accommodation taxes is the primary funding um, opportunity for most of our members. Uh, and then a handful of other, you know, entities with that vertical as well, whether it's uh, restaurants and uh, taxi delivery services, attractions, amusements, events, you know, the, the sort of the tourism vertical. And most members have found opportunities to tap into to these other entities and, and to get funding out of them. And yet what we've been saying is that you need to look beyond the tourism vertical and to look at how you're delivering value to what we call the unusual suspects. So these are the folks that we see as benefiting from the work of the destination organization. And yet they probably in most cases aren't really aware of that, at least not in any sort of discernible or, or, or measurable way. And these are going to differ based on, you know, the destination. But some examples that, you know, we, we think kind of cuts across the board would be things like major bedrock employers, major corporate employers in a destination. These employers that really rely on the strength of a brand to attract employees, to attract talent. You know, we see this uh, a, a year or two ago when Amazon was looking for their HQ2 and you know, one of the deciding factors in, in choosing the destination where they were going to put their HQ and, and attract tens uh, of thousands of highly compensated employees was the ability to attract talent to these destinations. And 
when these employers are out looking for talent, they really, they rely on the, the strength of the brand. Uh, they rely on the destination organization as their competitive advantage. We really don't see these employers in any sort of structured or, or fundamental way, having a seat at the table and being sort of an invested stakeholder in that organization. Uh, and we certainly don't see them contributing in any sort of meaningful way to the, the funding of that organization. <clears throat> another, another example might be something like a university or, or a college in a destination, which relies on the strength of the brand to attract students uh, in many cases. Uh, and they also rely on the strength of the, the destination to attract the talent of their faculty. And then, you know, the, the research funding that, that comes with that. Um, and again, we don't really see in any sort of fundamental way an opportunity for universities, for colleges to be contributing to the funding of a, of a destination organization. And, and we don't really see destination organizations talking to universities, talking to colleges as major stakeholders and demonstrating in any sort of measurable way the value that they're contributing. You know, and then you can you can kind of continue that logic into all sorts of different opportunities. You know, you could look at property um, and, you know, we say, look, an effective destination organization that's attracting investment, uh, that's attracting uh, visitors uh, is also attracting uh, new residents that the natural effect of that is uh, rising property values. You know, in that way, property owners, commercial property managers, developers, uh, investors are all benefiting from an effective destination or organization. Realtors. Uh, realtors, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a great example as well. And so what, what we've been encouraging is for uh, our members to think about, you know, a sort of fundamentally rethinking who their stakeholders are, and then the natural, the natural logic of that is thinking about who their funders are. It's not an easy thing, and there's certainly no silver bullet uh, or, or formula that would work in every place, but we uh, have sort of started talking about that and excited about continuing uh, to, to push that logic a little bit. As you said at Annual, it's who benefits, and we know it's everybody, but who benefits the most? That's probably the first call you make and then the first discussions that you begin to have with those people in your community, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We call this the community benefit model. As you pointed out, quite rightly, you, you start with thinking about, you know, who is benefiting from your work? And, you know, there's, there's a few things that, that come with this. You know, the first is that, you know, it's not just enough to recognize that you've got this entity in your destination that has been benefiting from your, your work without contributing. It's quite another to be able to go to that entity, uh, to go to that industry and to make a compelling case, uh, you know, probably built on an ROI argument that says, look, you're benefiting from our work in this way, and we're contributing, you know, this sort of, say, marginal increase in your business or what have you. Um, and that's going to require some pretty sophisticated thinking to be able to, to make that argument. But it's important. And, you know, the other thing that comes with this as well is that you would have to rethink the way that you speak to these stakeholders um, in general. Uh, it's not enough just to be extracting revenue from new stakeholders. Uh, but they need a seat at the table. Uh, and these organizations would have to rethink you know, the way that they're, they're speaking to these, these entities, uh, what that looks like in terms of board representation, what that looks like in terms of, you know, their local advocacy. There's all sorts of other considerations that, that would come with this. Yeah. How they're measuring success would be a, another major consideration as well. Yeah. And as listeners ponder this opportunity to expand and diversify revenue streams, uh, they may want to avail themselves of the DMOU episode that we did about a month or so ago with Ray Hoyt from Visit Tulsa. Because that's exactly what happened in Tulsa about eight, nine years ago, is that there was a pain point. Corporate Tulsa was having a hard time luring top talent to town. 
because the image of Tulsa just wasn't there. And for those of us that have been to Tulsa, I mean, I love Tulsa. It is a sophisticated, arts-driven, music-heavy destination. And for me, that's just heaven. But most people who've never been to Tulsa don't have that image in their heads. And so the corporate community has come together in Tulsa and collectively about 60 companies, non-tourism companies, are writing checks into a fund that tops about $2 million pre-COVID a year because they want Tulsa to look cool. Who's best equipped to do that? The destination organization, right? Visit Tulsa. And so they are going not to the Chamber of Commerce, not to economic development, not to any other group. They're saying to the folks that visit Tulsa, make us look cool. And that's who benefits is corporate Tulsa. Right. It's actually going to be actually on our advocacy summit in October. So we've blocked the speaking spot for him. Excellent. Because um, he is, you're right, you're, he's, he's the actual rock star out there that does this. We are beginning to see a lot of destination organizations who have like never had relationships with their universities starting to develop that. I see it in uh, Champaign, Illinois. We certainly look where Madison is today compared to where you guys were 20 years ago. So that's a huge shift. And we just... And we were beginning, we were talking to Scottsdale yesterday. They actually have a real estate development company on their board of directors. And and those are the type of first steps, which are great. But the second part is, even though they're on the board, you still need to explain, you know, how it is that the destination organization makes this magic happen. So they understand that and the direct benefit. When you find someone who gets it, and when I was in Chicago, the building owners and management association was one of our best supporters, which seems odd, but they had figured out that a strong tourism and visitor economy in Chicago actually boosted rent prices for them. So it was to their advantage. Yeah. And I want to also second the, uh, the episode of the um, Ray Hoyt one. I thought really what he outlined and, and situated and and parlay into really showing who benefited and finding a way to fund it. It's a really incredible story for everyone to, to hear. But to connect back to both what Jack said earlier and Gabe with both seeing us as a service and then also the community benefit funding model is people have to understand destinationalizations, our success isn't shown on the stock market. It's not shown on a balance sheet. You know, it's shown by new home sales, by restaurants opening and organizations and companies headquartering in your destination, you know, that is is showing where we are successful with that. And with that, as Gabe illustrated, it takes a new way of thinking and new way of talking to get those people to the table to, to see what our true value is to our community. All right. We've all seen how successful politicians master and utilize a select number of words to capture voter support or scorn for the other candidate. You've just released the 2020 edition of The Lexicon, that DMO pros need to adopt to give us a leg up in communicating effectively with our stakeholders and community leaders. So tell us how the lexicon has evolved over the past two or three years. Um, certainly. So it's it's incredible to point out that this is actually now our third year doing it. You know, for those of you who've seen myself and Jack on the road uh, doing this, you know, we started in 2018. It was just a, a humble 10 words. We quickly realized that was not enough. And we grew that from the 2018 edition to the 2019, where we actually expanded that um, to over 20. Um, and then even from there, we knew it still wasn't enough uh, from not only just being the words, but actually where we picked the words from. So for the 2020 edition, we actually went to 30 words. And in, in addition to part of it, 
uh, we also expanded it based upon different countries. Uh, for those of us who follow some of our writings, we actually experimented with this in the fall, where uh, sorry, the, the, probably the, the spring, where we looked at actually uh, a, a pandemic lexicon. So how our politicians um, in both the United States and Canada speaking about the pandemic and across their their public channels, so social media mentions, you know, Twitter, Instagram, um, YouTube, and whatnot. And so for this year, we, we decided a couple of different changes towards it. One was the, the localization component of it, that we were expanding not just to the United States, but also Canada as well, going to Australia, uh, some of the other countries that we, we follow. It's, it's very cool. Really, some I encourage everyone to go to look through some of the writings of it. It's really exciting and interesting to see the nuances in the words used by the different countries. I think to some extent, we, we largely always say, you know, tourism is universal, that kind of stuff. But when it comes to common goods and, and public goods, there is nuances to how each of the countries see those items and, and respectively seek about it. In addition to that, this year, we also added rankings to it. So before we sort of would just put the words out there, we actually put emphasis on which words are being used more readily than and not. And it's not to give importance of the other or not, but it gives sort of context to I guess the landscape of the world we live in right now, because you know, you've heard us talk numerous times about how the political landscape have shifted underneath us. And it's really interesting to see how where those words have come to the top versus the bottom. And the last thing that we added to it as well and to go to the the first release of the 2020 lexicon, we actually released the values as part of it. I think if you had seen Jack and myself sort of on the road before COVID and obviously summit last year, we were starting to really lean into what the values meant for us as a sector and how it related to the lexicon. So we actually put in not only the corresponding values with it, uh, the definitions and also use cases for, for each one of them in the releases. And really incredible to see the members who have picked up on it, activated it. I think, Bill, I just saw you post for your Z newsletter. I just saw you reference Jane from Champagne and her last page in her um, you know financial newsletter, it is just laden with the lexicon. You know, you start seeing those words like, you know, community, uh, um, provide investment all over it. And really a humbling experience to be able to offer that to the members and to be able to see how they are sort of taking the approach of not you know necessarily leading with ROI, but actually leading with an emotional tip of the spear to describing how they do. And of course, backing it up with ROI. Yeah. And as you guys know, you know, my word, the one that makes me just the craziest is the lack of the use of the word investment. I mean, I see every single day news articles coming across the feed that a city is giving, it is contributing, it is sharing, you know, it is donating. That's the, that's the one that makes me crazy is the city donates $1 million to the DMO. No, this is not a donation. This is not a share. This is not a give. This is an investment. It's the only reason that they do this. That's what, well, that's my word. But the fact that you've gotten up to 30 words, I, I think it's fascinating that just the the nuance between things like accountability and transparency, they're kind of the same thing, but they're not because one of them implies that there's something wrong. And one of them is a rock solid word that says we're on it, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, the original onset to teaching about the lexicon was that even before the pandemic, we, we were largely in illogical times. Um, and most of the messaging you saw out there was trying to combat 
logic with emotion. You know, you've probably seen Jack say this on stage numerous times, you can't combat logic, uh, you know, a logical argument against an emotional argument. And it was time for us, the destinations, to speak about ourselves in, in, in an emotional way, to start to lead with that and articulate that. And of course, back it up with logic and ROI and all those great stats that, that we have out there for us and research underpinning it, but that we actually are leading with story uh, over stat. Um, and that's been some of the, the kind of the words you the pointed out that really sort of articulate that uh, more so than we have before in our sort of our sector's past. What's particularly interesting about the 2020 release is you can definitely see the influence of what is happening this year. Ever since in response to the pandemic, in response to the murder of George Floyd, in response to the unemployment, um, there is a definite shift that people are listening to people who are talking about this is first of all the emotional connection that I, I understand that people need help and we're actually here to help you and that's what our focus is but the second part is that they're really looking for people who have a plan and what you know what are the first second and third steps going to be and you know how are we going to come out of this or how are we going to get through this and i think that's a great opportunity for destination organizations to kind of really step in the mold here and say, look, this is what our community is. This is what we think key elements of our, our recovery are going to be. And, and we're going to really highlight the role that the travel and tourism industry has and has had for the last, you know, 10, 15 years in bringing this economy about. We Just months ago, six months ago, we were one of the biggest, you know, sectors in the world economy. Um, we got to remind people of that and show them how, how that happens. Well, the Advocacy Summit is almost upon us. It's virtual, and it will occur over two days in two different months. So mark it on your calendar, October 15th and November 12th. You can learn more at destinationsinternational.org in the events section. Any final words on the uh, summit and what we can expect? Um, we will definitely be going deeper with Lexicon. We'll definitely be going deeper on this uh, community a benefit funding model, um, but we're bringing in some, trying to tap into the whole scope of things. So I'm bringing more Gaston just to give the history lesson of how we got from Detroit and what was it, 1896 or whatever, to here. Yeah. Um, and then talk about some of the things we're going to need to get through here. Um, Long Island has done some really incredible things yeah. about safety. So we're bringing them on board, we're bringing Adam Saxon to talk about where the opportunities may lie in these economic issues. Uh, we all know how bad things are uh, and that they're not getting well quick and we're not in a V-shaped recovery, but there are opportunities there. So we want him to come in and talk about that. So we are going to spend a lot of time, a, a fair amount of time talking about how to navigate this current situation, the, the great interruption, I would say. But then because it's a strategic inflection point, we'll finish by looking to the future and then talk about you know changes that need to be made. Um, and how people can approach them and enact them. And then November, we'll go full speed into what the uh, results of the elections are. Um, we're going to go a full-fledged into our annual, you know, this is what keeps us up at night. These are the things that are worrying us out there. Um, and then we're up, uh, a really deep focus in on tools and tactics and information that you can use every day. Sounds great. Can't wait. It's time now for the bonus round. Jack, you've already been on DMLU twice, so we're going to give you a pass this time. But Andreas, we'll go with you first. I hear that you have a great story on how you got your first full-time gig in DMO land, and it has something to do with a famous bar. So do tell. 
Yeah, famous bar and probably also infamous individual. Um, so you, you heard from my bow in the beginning. My first, air quoting, my first real adult job was actually, uh, I started interning for Visit Baltimore. Then it was known as the Baltimore Convention and Visit Association. I actually started interning there uh, during college. And this is right during the, you know, uh, the, the 08, 07 market crash. And I I was just praying. I was like, I don't want to leave college <laughs> without a job. You know, I, I didn't want to start at the bottom somewhere else. Um, and I really started to enjoy the work that I was doing, you know, working for a DMO. Um, and so at the time, and so for hopefully listeners and members who have followed along with uh, you know, DI's history, both be DMEI and, and ICVB, uh, the former COO, uh, Jeff Hungate, left, I think, uh, ICVB somewhere in 2004 and came to be the COO of uh, Visit Baltimore. And so he sort of took a knack to me and decided that, you know, they, they liked the, the work that I did and said, we want to hire Andreas full time uh, when his internship completed. So a couple of weeks before my graduation, he invited me out to a very famous bar across the street in Baltimore called Peter's Pub. Uh, there actually is, in fact, a, a Peter who owns it. Um, the pub is uh, pretty famous because it's been featured on numerous TV shows, most notably um, The Wire and also uh, Baltimore Homicide, the TV show. And so, you know, he, he took me out, which was kind of unusual at the time. Um, I was also just freshly t- turned 21. Uh, so I was sort of kind of wondering, okay, wh- where's this going to go? I was thinking, okay, maybe he's taking me out just to, to, to let me down to say, okay, we're not renewing your contract. And almost straight out of the movies, Jeff proceeds to, in very Jeff Hungate fashion, proceeds to say, you know, we, we really appreciate your work and I'm willing to offer you a job, but there's a catch. <laughs> and he proceeds to write out uh, a contract um, and basically an offer letter on a Peter's Pub bar napkin. Um, and if anyone knows extensively Jeff, he also is someone who is a little bit, he has a sense of humor to him. He is definitely a uh, work hard, play hard individual. And he said, well, here's the deal. Here's your, you know, your offer letter. I want you to countersign it, of course, on the bar and the bar bar back <laughs> authenticated and also signed Perfect. it. But, and this is on Friday and says, but here's the thing on Monday, I need you to go into the HR's office, which was uh, ironically located right next to Jeff's office. And you need to go in there and give this offer letter to them and saying, you were offered a job this weekend by uh, Jeff Hungate and he, and you know, it's, it's been cleared. And sure enough, I couldn't believe it and save that, that bar napkin with, you know, every ounce of might and strength to keep it through the weekend because, you know, they're flimsy materials and walked in very sheepishly to the, the director of HR at the time uh, with the door wide open and just said, you know, Jeff offered me a, a, a job offer this this past weekend. And of course, she was, you know, bewildered. She's like, you know, what are you talking about? No one, nothing's gone past me, that kind of stuff. Jeff knowing because he wanted to <laughs> just play a joke on her. And sure enough, I had to pull out this bar napkin from the bottom at back of my pocket and put it on her desk. And she just said, one second real quick and took the bar napkin and went across to Jeff's office and he was cracking up hysterically about it. And he said, yes, make it so, write it up. And then uh, I very pointedly asked, well, can I get the bar napkin back? And I have uh, kept that actually in a, a lock safe and still have it to this day. That's got to be that that moment on Saturday when you go back to the to the napkin and make sure that all the ink hasn't like evaporated because you know, it's been sitting on a drink, right? Oh yeah, yep. Oh, that's great. That's an amazing story. And so, Gabe, let's move to you with your bonus round. You also have a first gig DMO land story. Your first one was actually a startup, which is cool, but. Tell us where that startup was. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so 
I don't, I, I guess it's not quite as cinematic as Andreas' story. But yeah, my, my first job in uh, sort of the destination world uh, was working in a, a rural village in Bolivia, in like the Amazon region of Bolivia, where uh, there was wow. sort of this budding tourism industry that was kind of interesting. There was a, an Israeli man in the, the 1980s, a guy by the name of Yossi Ginsberg, who was uh, kind of on a, a bit of an adventure through the Amazon there with, with a couple of friends. What, what happened was he uh, was on kind of a, a rafting trip and things went, went sour. He was with a, a couple other guys and they got lost uh, in the jungle. And uh, kind of long story short, uh, he was the only one that, that emerged. And he went on to write a, a book about his experience there in the jungle for uh, 70 or, or 80 days. And it became kind of a, a bestseller in, uh, in Israel and inspired uh, kind of a, a generation of Israelis to uh, seek out this this little village in in northern northern Bolivia and kind of backpacking and, and, and visiting there through the the nineties and uh, by the time I got there in the the around around twenty ten it had really grown up into kind of a kind of regional tourism hub but was uh, certainly not managed in any sort of, of sustainable way uh, and there was some kind of negative effects of um, kind of the the, the tourism uh, industry there. And so I was working on a program that was that was funded by the U.S. government through USAID um, that was looking at how the tourism industry could be kind of organized there, could be restructured, could look at new markets. So what we did was brought together, um, you know, the industry and um, other stakeholders as well. Um, sort of a, an, an early example, I suppose, of the community benefit model. Working with um, the local stakeholders there, developed um, sort of a, a rudimentary um, uh, destination organization. Uh, we were able to implement um, an accommodation assessment um, and uh, created a membership organization with um, investment opportunities for the private sector, uh, and and formulated a, a bit of an organization there that was able to to manage the industry, and implement uh, sort of the, some of the early tourism policies um, in what was a pretty unregulated environment. Uh, uh, took over uh, marketing as well um, and implemented a couple of successful marketing campaigns. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then from there worked uh, in a number of other kind of unusual destinations before uh, landing at my desk here at, at BI now. Yeah, that's just simply amazing. And I'm, I'm sure that your Bolivian DMO is a member of Destinations International, right? <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> working on it. Hey, they owe it all to you, man. They, they should be right, right in the fold with us, right? Well, hey, thanks a lot, you guys. Great stories. And uh, once again, the Advocacy Summit for this year, virtual and two days in two months, October 15th, November 12th. Again, you can learn more at destinationsinternational.org in the events section. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers this is where the best and the brightest get together to tell inspiring stories for DMO pros. And thanks, too, to our sponsor, the Travel Ability Summit, a virtual conference designed to bring together the disability travel community, destinations, hotels, cruise lines, airlines, attractions, and product innovators to exchange practical solutions and new ideas for making travel accessible to all. To learn more, go to TravelAbilitySummit.com. DMOPros.com is where you will find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to the Z News, our Knowledge Bank, videos, blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z dot com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.